Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's all true. <laughs> no, I'm not secure enough to let that be. The only thing I say today, what should we do? What should we do? Every preacher dreams of preaching the sermon that brings forth that question. What should we do? Now, notably, most sermons assume that people like you have already asked the question, and that my job is here, I'm here to tell you what you're supposed to do, even though you haven't asked. Preachers fill their sermons with all sorts of lists of expectations and exhortations and tips. Stop using so much styrofoam. It's bad for the environment. Don't you know that? Don't let partisan politics paralyze your point of view. Don't you know it's ruining everything? That's when you all say amen. Stop checking your phone so much. Floss every day. While you're at it, quit drinking so much. That's what sermons become. Tips. How to be the best version of yourselves. Things we already know. But just because someone tells us to do them doesn't mean we're going to do them. And yet this sermon, the very first Christian sermon, it offers no suggestions, no ways to become a better you, and yet it results in something completely outstanding. Grace has ignited a question. And to be clear, this has got to be one of the worst sermons ever preached in the history of the church. It's awful. And I guess it's a good thing that it was so bad because we had nowhere to go but up. But, I mean, it's short. There's no illustration. There's no joke. There's no intellectual foundations. Peter doesn't even quote from a couple dead theologians to let you know that he's done his reading. There's no big screen that a slide is up there with that one repeated sentence that he comes back to over and over again. I mean, it's a bad sermon. And yet, on a day already filled to the brim with miracles, the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, one of whom receives the Spirit, the same one who had denied Jesus no less than three times just a few weeks before, gets up, preaches a sermon that's admittedly not very good, and it cuts the people to the heart. What should we do? Peter gives them an answer. He says, Repent, get baptized, receive forgiveness. Receive the Spirit. This is a promise for you and your children, for those who are far off, because God delights in having a crowded table. And you know what happens? 3,000 people are added to the church that day. What is going on here? What in the world is going on in the strange new world of the Bible? I cannot explain this scripture. I cannot point out these homiletical moves that produce such amazing fruit, except for the fact that the Spirit is capable of far more than we can ever ask or imagine. This is the very beginning of a promise that gets taken up by Paul later. He says, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the preaching of Christ. There's a lot of preaching in the New Testament, and this is the most miraculous response to any sermon that is preached. 3,000 people. It is a testament to the power of the Spirit, of God's intervening power, of Jesus' unrelenting grace. It is in sermons, even in mine, that God speaks, God acts, God stirs things up, and miraculously, we're moved to ask a question. What should we do? I think that's why all of us are here. 
We're waiting on a word from the Lord, hoping against hope that we will hear God say something to us through a song or a scripture or a sermon or even silence. Chances are everyone in this room is here because at some point along the way, we heard God speak to us somehow, some way, and that question is still burning inside of us. Now, just a moment, as the resident preacher in the room, this story gives me a whole lot of hope. Peter's got a poorly prepared, poorly delivered sermon to share, and that sermon changes the world. That means there's hope even for people like me even for people like you. That I will have something to say, that God will take what I say and shape it into what you need to hear. There's hope. There's hope because the Spirit delights in taking preachers' words and reorganizing them so that something stirs within us. There's a change taking place in Acts. Do you perceive it? There's a change happening even here in Roanoke. Anytime the church gathers, the Spirit starts to spin and starts to move and starts to stir things up. Worship is just the manifestation of this exact moment from the book of Acts. It's why Bob Dylan got it right. All these times they are a-changing. It's the gospel according to Bob Dylan. What should we do? It's a good question. It's a question we can only ever ask after a moment of disruption when we are cut to the heart by the inbreaking power of the Spirit. Listen, this Jesus you crucified, God raised him up. We're all witnesses. It's all true. Now he rules at the right hand of God. Let everyone know that God has made him both Lord and Messiah. And the crowds, they feel these words deep in their bones. Why? Is it because they were part of the crowds that were shouting crucify before he died? Is it because they doubted his words and his deeds? We don't know. Scripture doesn't answer those questions. It only tells us that they had their own question to ask. And Peter answers it. His answer is notable because it moves beyond so many other responses from Israel's history. There's no long list of theological doctrines to affirm. There's no rules or regulations. It's just this. Repent. Get baptized. Receive forgiveness. Receive the Spirit. These are the marks of discipleship. An encounter with God can't help but unend and reorient everything about the life that we have before the encounter. See, the gospel has this way of digging itself in, co-mingling with all of our thoughts about how things are supposed to be. The good news declares that God has already changed everything. We only need to act accordingly. In short, the people are moved to move upon hearing the story. That's what the word repent means, after all. It doesn't mean feel sorry about yourselves. It doesn't mean right all your wrongs. Repent means turn. Turn to something. Return to something. Metanoia is the word. It means to change, to turn. Unfortunately for the crowd on that Pentecost day and for all subsequent recipients of this proclaimed story, the gift of the Spirit, the gift of forgiveness, is not just for those who were in the room where it happened, the room where it happened. That's a Hamilton reference for you out there. It's not just for the people who were there. It's for everybody. It's for you and your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls, which just happens to be everyone, by the way. And to make it even better than that, 
The word wrought on the crowd that day and this day is not something that anyone can ever earn or achieve or deserve. There are so many things we do in this life in hopes that they will fix our problems, save us from our mistakes, our failures, our faults. We adopt new habits in hope that we can drop the bad ones. We promise, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never raise my voice again. And then we do. We flock to these books that promise with just these three simple steps, you'll turn your life around, and then when we finish the book, we look around, our lives are kind of the same. None of those things that we flock to can save us, can save anybody, for we, to use Peter's language, we are part of a crooked generation. Now, I know no one wants to be told that we're part of a crooked generation, but we all know it's true. It's not an easy word to receive, but it's true. It's just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. It would be astounding enough to know that we know everything we need to do to fix everything, and we refuse to do it if we just weren't so apathetic about it all. I mean, how many times has someone said, if we do this, it's just it, this is one simple thing. It'll fix everything. Do you know, if we just fed kids who come to school, all of their grades would get better. All we have to do is give them food. That's it. Not better textbooks, not better access to technology, not even better teachers. If we just give them food, they'll get smarter. Do we give them food? Well, guess what? In Roanoke City, we do. We got one thing going for us. Do you know, um, there are more guns in our country than human beings. If we maybe limited the access that we have, maybe, you know, maybe we can look at all these other countries. If we just did this one thing, kids wouldn't die when they go to school. Again and again and again. Throughout history, we keep... These, these moments, they keep coming up. If you just do this, it'll change everything. And do we do it? No. Just the same now as it always has been. Our selfishness gets in the way of our righteousness. It's always been that way. And then Peter stands up with a word. He points to the one who can actually do something with all of our mistakes. You see, what saves the crowds on Pentecost, what saves us is today, even today, it's the story of what has already happened. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, it sets loose a power into the world that calls into existence things that do not yet exist, a power that can actually turn things, change things. In other words, the great good news is we don't save ourselves, but because we can't save ourselves, it's Jesus who saves it's Jesus who searches. It's Jesus who redeems. It's Jesus who forgives. Peter's sermon's not very good, but he's got one thing going for him. He gives God all the good verbs. The God preached through Peter's witness is active, transformative, alive, shaking the very foundations of the cosmos. That's why, despite its bad rap, the grammar we learn in elementary school is far more important than we know. The Pew Bibles we have here in the church, even the scripture that John was reading on the screen, it says that at the end, Peter says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. But you've got to know your grammar. You've got to know your Greek. Because Peter uses a passive imperative verb. Now, I know I've already lost half of you. Just stay with me for one second. He uses a passive imperative verb. That means it's not save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It's let yourselves be saved. It's a big difference. I think it might be the difference that makes all the difference in the world. Because it means salvation is not out there somewhere. You just have to go get it. It means salvation is here already. 
Not in our striving, not in our good works, not in our perfect morality, not in our curated lives, but in Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit, in the love of God, which brings salvation to us. You never know how salvation is going to show up. It almost always comes around the side, obliquely, never obvious, usually subtle. There's a guy, his name is Zacchaeus, and he is just the worst of the worst of the worst. Everyone hates him. Steals money from his neighbors and his friends and his family. Terrible, no good, rotten, scoundrel. Zacchaeus has got nothing to show for his life. He's terrible. And then Jesus shows, you know, when I think of Zacchaeus, I think of Scrooge McDuck. You all know Scrooge McDuck? He dives into his pool of coins and money. That's Zacchaeus. And Jesus shows up in his life. And he says, Zacchaeus McDuck, I'm going to your house for lunch. They have turkey sandwiches and lemonade. And he's saved. We don't know anything about their conversation. We don't hear anything about what Jesus says to him. All we know is that when Zacchaeus walks out of lunch, he's changed. He's turned. And it's more than just a life after death situation. Salvation has come to upend his life right then and there. He is set free from his greed, from his selfishness. He sees the world anew. He turns. He's forgiven. He's saved. There's a woman She's going to the well in the middle of the day, minding her own business, enjoying her serial adultery. She's shunned by the rest of the village. That's why she has to go in the middle of the day. She can't go in the morning with all the other women. Her life's kind of a mess. She doesn't have any friends. And then Jesus brings salvation to her. He says, I am the living water. Salvation invades her very being. And it's more than a life after death situation. She is set free right then and there from her loneliness and her isolation. She's given worth and value. She goes back to the village, a new person. Walking the light, she's saved. The Gospels are filled to the brim with stories of salvation that come without earning or deserving or achieving, but simply because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Whenever he shows up, things start to turn what should we do? What should we do? The crowds, they beg and they plead for an answer. And Peter gives it to him. Turn. Get baptized. Receive forgiveness. Receive the Spirit. God is the actor in this proclamation. And the people, they know not all is as it should be in the world, in the cosmos, in their lives. They know that something has to be done. It just so happens that that something has a name. It's Jesus. Being connected to, walking along the way with Jesus, it creates a passion for living that is unparalleled, unrivaled in the world. That's the joy of Easter. That's what happens when you hear this is true. Now, despite all the consumerism around Easter made manifest in matching outfits and pastel-colored eggs and even you know, two-person slingshots of hard-boiled eggs into the middle of a farm, despite all of that stuff, Easter changes things. I was here on Easter. I saw it, I felt it, I tasted it, I touched it, I heard it. People left church differently than they arrived on Easter. It's the power of the Spirit revealed in the Word. There's this undeniable, unshakable hope. We call it grace that just beats down upon our lives over and over again, a reminder that the worst thing is never the last thing, that salvation is here. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the preaching of Christ. Church is in the business of learning the language, the grammar of faith that arrives that we might let ourselves be saved. 
Andy Squires. He's a, a church musician, a writer. He is a self-proclaimed poet-priest. And last Sunday at about 11 o'clock, while all of us were in church, Andy posted a little reflection that he wrote that morning for people to read online. I read it after church, and I thought, I think he's answered the question. What should we do? This is what Andy said. Go to church. If the sermon is boring, take a nap. If the sermon is compelling, then you're blessed. Chances are, you're not going to like something you encounter on Sunday morning. All churches are pretty lame, to be honest, but thank God. I can't handle a church that is so slick that I would actually pay attention to every single thing that happens. Go to church. You know why I go to church? I go to church to be all around all the weirdos. You know those people who lift their hands up when they're praising Jesus, those beautiful liturgical types who like to get dressed up in church on Sunday. I might even hang out with those wild evangelicals who don't even really know what they're doing while they're doing it. Go to church. The church is a hell of a complicated place. But I go because I get to ask questions that make all the perfect people nervous. I go because I need to be made nervous too. Go to church. Life is too short to not go to church where all the old ladies go on and on about nothing, where teenagers are finally given the gift of boredom, where I can get saved from my own perfectly curated life. What should we do? Turn. Remember your baptism. Receive forgiveness. Receive the Spirit. Let yourself be saved. It's all true. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.